0: So we're doing a, a series in the, in the book of Jude, walking through it verse by verse. We're going to do something uh, a little bit different today. We're going to step out of the, the verse by verse exposition for a week and follow up on what I talked about last week. But really what I'm going to try to do today is something that the Apostle Paul said uh, a few times in the book of Acts that, that he was trying to do Uh, when he shared Jesus with people, and that he was reasoning with people from the Scriptures. So what I want to try to do this morning is to reason with you a little bit from the Scriptures. So last week we looked at uh, Jude verse 3, which in part says, "...to earnestly contend for the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints." Now, based on that phrase, and we talked about last week what the faith is, and we'll review that in just a minute, but based on that phrase, I want to pose a question to you today and ask us to to think through it a little bit uh, as to uh, the answer uh, to the implications of it for our lives, And, and it's this question, why have faith in the Christian faith? I mean, in a world of competing worldviews, points of view, uh, philosophies, belief systems, uh, in, in, a, in a world where many people uh, would say that you're nuts, that you're intellectually deficient for being a Christian, why have faith in the Christian faith? Now, some of you have heard me share this before, but kind of the way my family is wired. I'm kind of naturally a little bit of a skeptic. I'm kind of like, you got to prove it to me. Um, Show me the evidence. Lily's that way. Jay's that way. Robin's more like, I just believe. I mean, I wish I had as much faith as Robin sometimes. Uh, Molly's wired the same way as her. But I, I want to know why. I want to know, you know, is this really true? Is this really the way uh, that it is? And, you know, I, I grew up going to church, made a profession of faith when I was nine. And, but when I was in college, went through a season where I really doubted and questioned and decided to try to wrestle it out, figure it out uh, for myself. And um, so kind of based on that, I, I would encourage you to do two things today if, if you're not a Christian is to make up your mind to find out what is true and figure out what you believe, but then act on it. I mean, when I was in college, uh, my degree is one of the more useless degrees that you can get in and of itself. I have a history degree with a minor in sociology. I mean, that'll make you a fortune right there, <laughs> that combo. But, um, but I, I decided to study Christianity historically to see if uh, Scripture was reliable, uh, particularly to focus on the, the resurrection of Jesus and if that's true. But then I also made the decision that based on what I discovered and the decision that I made about its truthfulness, I was going to live in accordance with that. And I would encourage you to make that same decision, because what I decided is if Jesus rose from the dead, the smartest thing I could do would be to commit my life to him. And if Jesus didn't rise uh, from the dead, that the dumbest thing I could do would be to be religious and play around with church, because there's not a whole lot of middle ground with a claim like that. So if you're not a Christian, if you're on the fence, if you're trying to figure this out, if somebody drug you here, I'd encourage you to at least hear me out and then for you to do some study for yourself, but then determine to make a life decision based on what you believe. And so if you're, if you're already a Christian, you say, well, how does this uh, apply to me? Well, 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give an a, a defense, an answer to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And, and so, uh, you know, it's good to know the kind of stuff we're going to talk about today when you share your faith with other people, but it's good to know this kind of stuff sometimes just for ourselves because... Yeah, maybe you're like Robin, maybe you have more faith than me, but, but sometimes I have questions. A lot of times I have questions. Sometimes I have doubts. Sometimes, you know, I, I need an anchor point just to kind of, you know, hold my heart down and, and to keep me firm and, and solid and, and, and steadfast in, in, in the faith. So what I want to share this morning really is just five reasons, and I'm just kind of giving you an, an, an overview Of uh, reasons, you know, for me at least, that convince me to compel me, that compel me to have faith in the Christian faith. Now, I could give you a lot more than five reasons. Uh, I I could uh, go into a lot more depth than I'm going to have the time to go into in 40 to 45 minutes this morning. Honestly, I I could do an all day seminar on this without a ton of preparation. I mean, there's just that much evidence uh, out there. So, But I just want to give you some of the basics this morning. So uh, before we get into those five reasons, just to review quickly from from last week and maybe to add one thing to it. Again, Jude verse 3. Earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we talked last week and we talk about the faith... We're not talking about faith as a verb in this context that refers to us trusting. We're talking about faith as a noun that is the content of the Christian faith, the the basic fundamental essence of what Christianity is as revealed in the New Testament. And so, Uh, Some of those basics that have been agreed on by the church down through the centuries is that God is the creator and sovereign ruler of the world. We're made in his image as male and female. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons uh, who are the one God, one in essence, co-equal, co-eternal. Jesus Christ is fully God and genuinely man, born of a virgin who lived a perfect and a sinless life, died on the cross as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sins, bodily rose from the dead, ascended to heaven where he's interceding for us. Someday he's literally uh, going to come back to the earth, set up his kingdom. The Bible is the inspired and errant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that Jesus is the only way to God. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the faith. But but there's a step beyond that that we need to take this and to understand that sound doctrine is important, but ultimately our faith is not in the faith. That's kind of maybe just like the scaffolding, but the actual foundation of our faith, the cornerstone of our faith, is Jesus Christ himself. Saving faith is, is not in a set of doctrines. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I know, he didn't say, I know what I have believed. He said, I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him unto that day. I know whom I have believed. And these doctrines are important. But ultimately, saving faith is faith in Jesus Christ. You can have perfect head knowledge of sound doctrine and split hell wide open if you haven't truly been converted in your heart, which would mean you're convinced in your mind, but God has done a work of regeneration in you where the affections of your heart are turned toward Christ and where your will is submitted to Him as Lord. That's saving faith. The Bible says in 2 John uh, verse 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. 1 Corinthians 2.2 said, Paul wrote, for I, am, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Colossians 2, 8-10, Paul writes, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the, tradition, to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, in, in, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And a real literal wooden translation of that verse from the Greek would say that everything that is God is permanently housed in Jesus Christ in bodily form. He's the God-man. That's who we claim that he is. Christianity is Christ because it says you're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So understand, if you have genuine Faith in the Christian faith, it means that you have genuine faith in Christ. But as Christians, we kind of build this scaffolding up around Christ to make sure we're saying the right things about Him. Because Paul said, and of course, many people today have this, that you could have another Jesus who's not the real Jesus. Like one time, a long time ago, Robin and I used to do a Bible study at the youth emergency shelter in Moorestown. And uh, there was a young lady up there, a teenage girl, who said that she was a Christian because she saw a vision of Jesus when she was high on drugs. Now, you know, I've kind of missed that verse in the Roman road plan of salvation, you know, that, you know, hallucination while you're high. Uh, Listen, if we're going to come to Christ, it has to be the Bible way. But again, the question is, why? Why? Is this true? Is this believable? Listen, I don't want to base my life on a lie. I mean, I hope you don't. I don't think you would. I want to base my life on what is true. Is Jesus Christ really the Son of God? Is he really Lord? Is he Savior? Because if he is, that answers the other big questions of life. If he's not, well, where are we going to go to answer? Those questions. So, five reasons to trust and follow Jesus. Five reasons to have faith in the Christian faith. Here's where I would start. Number one, the evidence that God is creator. The evidence that God is creator. Now, we're kind of going to work more directly towards Jesus, although Uh, The Bible certainly claims that Jesus was part of creation, but this is laying a foundation, and it's an important foundation. Because can I tell you one thing that atheists and Christians 100% agree on? One thing that atheists and Christians 100% agree on is that if Genesis 1-1 isn't true, there is no basis for the Christian faith. Most Christians agree with that. Now, some Christians get caught up in the world, but, and, and listen, you can't be, uh, Adrian Rogers would say, if Genesis 1-1 is a myth, then John three sixteen is a farce. And, and, and that's true. And, and, and atheists would, would say the same kind of thing, as far as if, if God is not a creator, if evolution is true, then everything else falls from there, because the rest of the Bible is built on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, Paul built his doctrine of salvation on Jesus being the second Adam, so if there's no literal Adam or Eve, you might as well rip the New Testament out of your Bible, too. So, why uh, would we believe that God is actually the creator in in light of uh, what is said in our modern world about the truth of evolution? Well, Again, this is something to talk about for hours. I can spend maybe five to ten minutes on this point, but let me just point out two or three things. The first thing I want to point out to you is what is known as the cosmological argument. And uh, you know, to me, this logically proves that there had to be a creator. And so instead of me explaining it to you, I
1: want you to watch this video if you would.
0: You see, that's what's called a syllogism. And in a syllogism, if the premises are true, the conclusion has to be true. And so, uh, if you know, everything that uh, exists has a cause, and the universe uh, you know, exists then something had to cause it. And, you know, something that Lee Strobel points out is how evolution violates the law of cause and effect. I mean, think about it. You may say, you know, if you believe in creation, it's, it's just a faith thing and we've got science and all that. But I think it takes more faith to believe in evolution than to believe that God created everything. Why would I say that? Well, think about this. If evolution is true, we have to believe that nothing produces everything Non-life produces life, randomness produces fine-tuning, chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. And to me, that takes a lot of faith, and to me, it goes against all reason. I mean, when we look around, the world appears as if it was intelligently designed. And I think that is demonstrated by things like the idea of irreducible complexity, which would say that transitional forms are impossible in the evolutionary process because what would happen to a fish evolving into a human? It would die. Um, Things like the anthropic principle, which says that this world appears to be suited for life exactly as it exists because there are so many things, Francis Collins has pointed this out, that if they were just changed just slightly, that life could not exist on the earth. So when I look at things like that, it's not hard for me to believe Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not hard for me to believe what Colossians 1:16 says about Jesus when it says, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, they're on earth, whether visible or invisible, uh, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So. I think the cosmological argument uh, demonstrates that God is creator, which is a uh, powerful reason to believe the Christian faith. A second reason would be the moral argument for God's existence. He said, what's the moral argument for God's existence? It, it basically goes like this uh, it, 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 that we believe that things are right and wrong. But for there to actually be a standard of absolute right and wrong, there had to be a standard giver, a law giver, someone uh, who is above us who says that things are a certain way. Or another way to think about it is we desire justice. Why would we desire justice if we're just highly evolved animals without a soul or a spirit? It would point to the fact that we're made in the image of God. So, uh, think about it in this way. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, If no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality to Nazi morality. He was writing several decades ago. He says, The moment you say one lot of morals is better than another, you are, in fact, measuring them by an ultimate standard. And everybody does this all the time, we just don't necessarily admit the implications of it. Um, you understand, when atheists use words like right or wrong or truth or goodness or beauty or things like that, they have to borrow Christian theistic categories to even be able to do that. Because again, if there is no God, we have no soul, we're just highly evolved animals, why would we even be thinking in these ty- types of spiritual uh, terms? Um, Now that doesn't mean, I'm not saying that atheists can't live moral lives. There's certainly atheists who are more moral than Christians. I'm saying there's just no logical basis for morality in atheism. Martin Luther King Jr. pointed out in a letter from a Birmingham jail that what Hitler did in Germany was legal even though we knew it was immoral. This fact points to us having a conscience and to the reality that there is a higher law that transcends earthly laws. And these realities point to the existence of God. If truth and morality are subjective and relative, on what logical ground can we call anything objectively wrong or evil, even the Holocaust? Think about it this way. Again. You know, when you're considering physicians, you've got to play it out to a logical conclusion. So let's just say for a minute that atheism is true and that evolution is a fact. That means that we have no soul, we have no spirit, that we're just highly evolved animals. Well, think about the animal world. In the animal world, if a lion kills a zebra, we say the lion killed the zebra. We don't say the, li- the lion murdered the zebra, right? There's no moral connotation to it. Why? Because we don't believe animals are capable of moral reasoning. Why? Because they're just animals. They're not human beings made in the image of God. Or uh, what about if a shark, and this is a fact of nature, forcibly copulates with another shark? We don't call that rape like we would uh, if it involved human beings because they are animals. But uh, if we are just highly evolved animals, Why would we think in terms of murder and rape? Why would we think in terms of right and wrong? Uh, William Lane Craig says, If there is no moral lawgiver, then there is no objective moral law. And if there is no objective moral law, then we have no objective moral uh, duties. We can just go function like animals. Or think about it this way. We crave justice. I mean... You're watching a a, a game on TV, and you think the umpire, referee, makes a bad call. You're going nuts. Why? Because you're made in the image of God and because you're corrupted by sin. Right? Both of these things working together. But we have this desire for justice. Again, if we're just highly evolved animals, why do we crave justice? Listen, down at the Knoxville Zoo today, the animals are not having a gathering of their philosophical uh, society debating social justice issues in the world. It points to the reality of God. And think about it this way if there is no God, ultimately there is no justice because there can only ultimately be justice at the judgment, uh, at the throne of God, because there's definitely not justice in this world in many, many cases. Our conscience, the, uh, our belief in right and wrong, our desire for justice, the moral argument for God, all of these things point to the uh, existence of God. But, but here's a third reason. You may or may not agree with this. But, uh, it, and this is honestly where a lot of people attack Christianity, and I understand that. But to me, a reason to believe in the Christian faith, a reason to believe in Jesus, is that Christianity provides the most compelling answer to the question of evil and suffering now I'm not saying it's emotionally satisfying and let's be real any thinking person has questions has struggles wrestles with with issues when we have personal pain when we look at the suffering and the evil and, and, and the problems in, in, in the world and if you're like me at all sometimes you're like why God Why is this happening? Why are you putting up with this? Sometimes, uh, you know, what's in my mind or on my lips are the words of the psalmist. How long, O Lord? How long, God, are you going to put up with this? And and so, you know, the argument goes a lot of times, if God is all-powerful and can stop evil, and God is loving and doesn't want there to be evil, you know, why doesn't he do it so there must not be a God? But, again, uh, only spiritual beings made in the image of God with a soul are going to be uh, thinking in this way. Having these questions doesn't deny the existence of God. It actually points to the existence of God. Again, the Knoxville Zoo Philosophical Society is not debating the issue of uh, the suffering and evil this morning. I mean, the lions and the tigers are not taking opposite sides of this question today. C.S. Lewis, again, in Mere Christianity, put it this way. He says, my argument against God, before he was a Christian, was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But he says, how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Isn't what he's saying? He's saying he realized just the very fact that he had these thoughts and wrestled with these questions pointed to, not away from, the existence of God. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that. But but ultimately, what Christianity says about suffering and evil is that God made us in his image. He made us to choose. He made everything good that we're the ones who have brought about evil and suffering in in this world, and that we're experiencing the consequences of that as we live in in, in a fallen world. And, uh, you know, it, it causes us to have to take responsibility. But even beyond that, and and, and to me, this is the ultimate answer to this question, the ultimate answer to this question is the cross of Jesus Christ, because it says to us that we have a God who loves us so much that he became one of us, he came into this world that he made, we corrupted, he played by his own rules, and he suffered with us, and he suffered for us in dying on the cross, and and in in his suffering, uh, there's answers for our suffering, he can redeem our pain and it says to us that our our suffering if we're in Christ is not permanent it's temporary that there's a better day coming because of what he has done for us and no other religion or philosophy posits an answer like that because listen to me it says the answer is not ultimately philosophical the answer is personal I don't know what I've believed. I know whom I have believed. The answer is Jesus. And number four, flowing out of the cross. And, um, you know, this is what settled me when I was younger. But the historical fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that he is the Son of God who died for our sins. You see, this is the claim of Christianity. Christianity that Christianity is not ultimately based on religious beliefs, but on the fact that Jesus was seen alive by eyewitnesses after his death. Uh, Luke wrote in the book of Acts, He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs proofs having been seen by them during 40 days. Paul said that he was seen by Peter the Twelve, over 500 brethren at once, all the apostles, James the half-brother of Jesus, and by Paul himself. Now, again, that's a claim? I mean, why would you believe that claim? People are like, You know, that's crazy. People don't rise from the dead. Well, people don't rise from the dead unless they do rise from the dead. Uh, I mean, you can't say somebody didn't rise from the dead because... People can't rise from the dead. This isn't science. This is historical. And You have to understand, you know, we're we're modern people. We're so video-oriented in our society. I mean, we want some film on it. But you have to understand, and again, I'm no historian. I do have a degree in it. I know a little bit. But when you study ancient history, the evidence for Jesus dwarfs the evidence for other ancient figures and events in most cases. Not only the biblical record, but evidence outside of Scripture. So, here, here's some proofs to consider when it comes to the resurrection. No, one of these things absolutely proves it. When you add it together, I think it's a really strong case. One would be the fact that Scripture and the early church creeds, which predated Scripture, like Paul recorded one of those in First Corinthians uh, chapter 15. They were written so close to the time of the resurrection and they claimed that the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared to his followers, which means that there wasn't time for legends to arise. All the New Testament books were written in the first century. The gospels were probably written within 20 to 30 years of his death, but like that creed in 1 Corinthians 15, most scholars date it to within one to five years after the resurrection. Number two, and this was... Maybe what convinced me more than anything else when I was studying this, many of his followers gave their lives not for what they believed, but for what they saw. Lee Strobel, who wrote um, the, the Case for Jesus, he was an atheist, a lawyer, reporter, turned to Christ, uh, says this was a critical point in his spiritual journey. He puts it this way. He said, it had been put to me this way. People will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true. But people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. While most people can only have faith that their beliefs are true, the disciples were in a position to know without a doubt whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. They claimed that they saw him, talked with him, and ate with him. If they weren't absolutely certain, they wouldn't have allowed themselves to be tortured to death for proclaiming that the resurrection had happened. Chuck Colson, who was you know, arrested in prison during the Watergate scandal and came to Christ during all that, put it this way. He, he said, "You know, after what I saw in Watergate, when the most powerful people in the world couldn't keep a conspiracy together for more than a few weeks, how would you expect that these 12 lowly disciples would keep this lie going for the rest of their lives? Third proof. You have Peter preaching Jesus in Jerusalem less than two months after he denied Jesus. And the religious leaders opposing, persecuting the church, but not being able to produce a body to shut it up. Uh, number four, you have James and Jude. Jesus' half-brothers. And remember, his family thought he was crazy. Worshiping their brother as God. What's going to take for you to worship your brother as God? I mean, maybe like a headlock, an arm bar, or maybe seeing him risen from the dead. You've got the conversion of Saul, the persecutor, to Paul, the follower and preacher of Jesus. No legitimate secular historian is going to dispute that that happened. The question is, what caused it to happen? Well, What's the alternate explanation other than him seeing the risen Christ? Uh, number six you have the claim that the women discovered the tomb and were the first eyewitnesses of the risen Lord and again this is so important one of the criteria that uh, historians use is is the the criterion of embarrassment do they say things that embarrass themselves uh, the writers of the gospels did that all the time they look like a traveling clown show uh, w- with Jesus but you know in, in first century Judaism a woman could not testify in a court of law her word would have been meaningless so to posit the women as the first Eyewitnesses, if you're making up the story, would make no sense. You would be a really bad liar to position someone as the first eyewitness that no one would have cared what they said. So, why would you do that? You're only going to do that if you're a really bad liar, if you're actually telling what happened. Number seven, Jews who were strictly monotheistic and revered Yahweh are now worshiping Jesus as God and talking about uh, what we call the Trinity. Number eight, think about the changes in their religion made by these Jews. They went from synagogue to church, worshiping on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday, abolishing the sacrificial system in favor of the ordinances of baptism and communion. They went from law to grace and a political Messiah to a spiritual Messiah. And again, if if you're trying to be a historian and go back and reconstruct this, if these are the facts, then you're looking for the why behind the what? What's the why? And and, and to me, the ninth proof, proof is the lack of a compelling explanation that fits the facts, other than the resurrection, and the reality that the resurrection explains these things and the changes that took place. J.P. Moreland, uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland, a philosopher, puts it this way. He says, when a major cultural shift takes place, historians always look for events that can explain it. Okay, then let's think about the start of the Christian church. There's no question it began shortly after the death of Jesus and spread so rapidly that within a period of maybe 20 years, it had even reached Caesar's palace in Rome. Not only that, but this movement triumphed over a number of competing ideologies and eventually overwhelmed the entire Roman Empire. Now, if you were a Martian looking down on the first century, would you think Christianity or the Roman Empire would survive? It's a compelling question. You probably wouldn't put money on a ragtag group of people whose primary message was that a crucified carpenter from an obscure village had triumphed over the grave. Yet it was so successful that today we name our children Peter and Paul and our dogs Caesar and Nero. (laughs) Again, what explanation fits the facts? And I would say it is that Jesus rose from the dead Which if he rose from the dead means that he's the son of God it means that he is our savior who atoned for our sins it means that what he said was true and he said that we could trust this book and so that's why I say if you've heard me preach much at all if you've heard me say my philosophy of life is I'm going to go with the guy who rose from uh, the, the dead and you understand sometimes people accuse Christians Christians of circular reasoning saying well you know it says it in the bible so it's true and you believe the bible's true but see it's not circular reasoning if you start with not the premise that the bible is true but but you start with the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? And then if there's evidence that shows that Jesus rose from the dead and that demonstrates that he's the son of God, then you can look at what he says about this book and about everything else and you can put your faith in him and thereby then put your faith in this book. So it's just simply a matter of how you approach it. And then the last reason quickly is that grace is unique in religious thought, and it's not an idea that we would think up. You see, when you think about religion, Christianity is the done plan. It's what Jesus did for us, it is finished, what he accomplished on the cross. Every religion is the do plan. It's some form of works. It's kind of like if if you walk down the aisle of a grocery store and you're in the canned vegetable aisle and, and you're looking for peas, let's say. There may be, I don't know, I try to avoid stores, but there may be, I don't know, six, eight brands of peas. Right, and the and the packaging on the label uh, on the outside of the can looks different, but if we bought six different cans and uh, took a can opener and opened it up, they're all pretty much going to look the same level of grossness
1: on the inside, right? I mean, they're they're basically the same. based so why would christianity
0: come along and say it's all by grace why would it be so unique and i'm not saying there's a definitive answer but i'm saying it's an important question but i think there's two things to think about number one you know religion philosophy is based on the idea of karma You know, you get what you give, what you do comes back to you. And, of course, the Bible says, you know, we reap what we sow. So, in a sense, it's not, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but, uh, you know, that idea of sowing and reaping certainly within Christianity, but then grace transcends that because grace says that on the cross, Jesus reaped what we sowed. Again, it's just unique. But even beyond that, I don't think grace is an idea that we would think up it runs counter to how we work what's the world tell us and what, how are we wired we're wired to be the hero of our own story when, when you read uh, the Gospels and again you got to ask are they being honest well to me as much as they talked about their faults and their screw-ups and as much as they presented Jesus as the only Savior the hero of the story and not themselves that points to truthfulness and veracity into the reality that the way to God is through grace. You see, Jesus told a story in, in Luke chapter 18. It says he spoke this parable, starting in verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And you see, the people in that day and time, I mean, they would have thought this was the good guy. You know, he's a Pharisee, he's a religious leader, they're super spiritual and all these kind of things. Now, we may hear that and think, that's disgusting. He's so arrogant. But let's be real. That's every one of us. To some degree and in some way. You may not even be a Christian. But you're like that. Because you're like, I don't need this God stuff. I'm better than most of the Christians I know. I'm a good person. I'm moral enough. That's how we think. We don't think grace. This is how our hearts are wired. We're proud. That's at the root of all of our sin. We want to be seen and known and and, and admired. We, we, We want to fix our own problems or hide that we have problems. But Jesus said here in the tax collector, and you know, the tax collectors are the lowest of the low. You know, that'd be like saying today in the pedophile, or the mafia don, or the drug dealer, or something like that. The tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And see, that's the point that we all need to come to. I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. God, I need your mercy. And then seeing and believing that that mercy comes through Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead. For our sins and us repenting and being broken over our sin and coming to him and crying out to him and trusting him and receiving what he has done for us because Jesus says here and this punchline would have just blown these people away he says I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted And so, again, my question, to go back where I started as we conclude. What do you believe? What do you believe is true? What are you basing your life on? Are you trusting in Jesus? Trusting in yourself? Another philosophy? Another religion? me. I believe what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Because I believe the evidence says he's the creator. I believe the evidence says that just morally and the way we're wired and, and our belief in right and wrong and justice says there is a God That. The questions we have about evil and suffering point to God, not away from God. And then the resurrection says that God has revealed Himself, manifested Himself, that God died for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that His grace is what we need. So I would say to you today, if you're a Christian, Learn this stuff so you can share it with other people. Learn this stuff for when you have questions and doubts. And I would say to you, if you say you're a Christian today, that this is not something to be on the fence with. I mean, there's too much at stake, and it's too audacious of claims to be on the fence with. I mean, if Jesus is the Savior, if Jesus rose from the dead, live like it. If you say you believe that. If not, if you don't really believe that, go do something else. But if you say you're a Christian, present yourself to him as a living sacrifice to live for him day in and day out, to walk with him, to honor him, to serve him. Some of you need to take you know, a first step of obedience and just getting baptized and going public with your faith and in the Bible way, in God's way, declaring that I am a follower of Christ, I am not ashamed of him, I'm going to live for him. I'd challenge you to do that. But if you're not a Christian, maybe some of you aren't sure yet what you believe. Maybe you've got questions. I'd love to talk with you. Come see me afterwards. Fill out the, the connection card. Text uh, the TLC decision to 94000. Let's set up a time. Let's sit down and talk through some of this. But some of you know this in your head. And that's a question of what are you going to do with it. And see, some of you need to stop adding your works to Jesus and just call out to God for mercy. Humble yourself. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Stop being a legalist. Stop being a religious works-oriented person because that's not true salvation. Some of you, though, you need to bow your knee to Christ. And submit to him as Lord. Surrender to him. Not just have the head knowledge. But true, genuine, saving faith. Let's bow our heads.